Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Brethren, we read the parallel passage of Mark as we went through Matthew before, but there are some unique things about the account that Mark gives us of this passage. First of all, I would like for you to notice that he's talking about it beginning by stating that one of the scribes had heard them arguing, well, the, the, the translation may say arguing, but in reality what that means is a discussion. They had a discussion. People were arguing not in the sense of fighting, but arguing in the sense of going back and forward because some of the uh, Jewish people had gone to Jesus to ask him questions, um, but questions in order to test him. Is this really a rabbi? If it's really a rabbi or a good rabbi, he would have the answer to the questions that we ask him. So they were testing him. They were making sure that he was not one of those people that would try to rise up and deceive the, the people of Judah. Well. They also wanted to trick him because they wanted to discredit him because they perceived him to be a threat. So it's arguing in that sense, but it's not that Jesus was arguing or fighting with them. He was just answering their questions and, and, and in, in terms of their mind and the idea that they can prevail over him. He put that to rest. And the question was asked, what commandment is the most important? It's interesting that Jesus began his answer with a Shema. The Shema is recited by the Jewish people at least twice, if not three times a day. It's their condensed, um, well, statement of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. There's only one God. There's no other God besides that. And then he added what we are quite familiar with, the two commandments, love God above all things and love yourself. I mean, no, he didn't say love yourself, did he? and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, a lot of people would take it that way, but we already discussed it, so we're not going to address that part again because we already talked about it. No, he didn't say love yourself, did it? He? he said love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said there are, there's no other commandment greater than these two. You want to know what the greatest point of the law is? You want to know what the greatest point of all of Scripture is? You have it right there. He says there is absolutely nothing greater than this. And the question I want to ask today is why? What does that mean? What difference does it make? I mean, aren't the other commandments important? Well, the scribe answered him and says, well, Rabbi, you answered well. <laughs> you can see a little bit condescending type of comment from 
that scribe. But he also added something to that which is very interesting. He said that loving God and loving the neighbor is much more, in verse 33, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know, there are a lot of people that are looking for religion. There are a lot of people that are looking for ceremonial. There are a lot of people that are looking for the appearance of goodness, of righteousness. Hey, I am righteous because I'm going and I'm bowing and kneeling and doing this and doing that. I'm offering this. I, I lift that. I put down the other thing. It's all about ceremony because it's easy and it makes us feel righteous. We've done our duty. We went through the steps. We jumped through the loops. And yet... Jesus told this scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Why? Because he acknowledged that the commandment about love stands above all things and especially above all the ceremonial aspects of religion. So I would like to take you on this brief journey today through scripture and very quick and answer the question, why is this or are these two? One is similar to the other. One actually is the derivative of the other. The second, loving your neighbor as yourself, is a derivative of the first commandment of loving God above all things, including yourself. Why is that the most important thing? How can Jesus say that? And how can that scribe even understand that it's much more important than all the ceremonial aspects of any religion or any aspect of being Christian? So let's begin with a statement that we have visited quite a few times. From 1 John 4, 8, God is love. But that statement is also put in a context. We always extrapolate that last part of that verse. But you know what the first part of the verse says? It says that the one who does not love does not know God. Ah! A lot of people are saying, I want to know God. I know God. I'm a man of God. I'm a woman of God. I'm a person of God. You know, you can say you're a Christian as much all you want. You can say you're a man or a woman of God all you want. But if you don't love, you have no idea who God is. God is love. And then we remember the first memorization scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. How did God express his love? By giving of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's the message from Scripture. God loves you, but he loves you utterly, completely. Nothing left behind, nothing held back. Do you understand that? I hear so many Christians say, oh, I've done some horrible things. There's no way that God could love me. You are thinking in human terms, because in human terms, people will only love you for what you do for them. That's why you say, well, I've done some pretty bad things. There is no way that God could possibly love me. But God does. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. God loves you utterly, completely. I want you to concentrate on those two words, utterly, completely. Nothing held back. So much so, in fact, that he has given himself for you. What does that mean? We already talked about who God is. We already talked about the fact that God is the one who created the entire universe. There is absolutely nothing that exists that can exist in and by itself. God is the only one who is a self-existent. God is the only one who always was, is, and will be. But he created all things. He sustains the entire universe. Every molecule, every atom, every photon and proton, every quantum, every and any aspect of matter, of creation, of the whole universe is held together by him. And yet, in all that glory, in all that power, in all that dominion that he has, what more can he give for you but himself? 
And that's what he did. He gave himself in the person of Jesus Christ, in and through Jesus Christ, he gave himself for you, utterly, completely, nothing held back. And he has pledged his very being as God for your salvation. I talk to people who question their salvation because of, again, religion, because of their actions, because of what they do or don't do. And yet God himself has pledged his very being as God for your salvation. In John 6, 39, it's written, there is, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up in the last day. This is the, the word of Jesus Christ who made a commitment with the Father and the Father has made a commitment with you that of all that he has given him, not one will be lost. You are in the palm of his hand. And you know what the other hand does? It puts a shield around you. You're safe. Because he has committed his own very being as God for your salvation. But there is one thing he will not do. He will not force you. Because, essentially, because love cannot be forced. Love can only be given. And if God were to force you to love him, he wouldn't be love. So as far as he is concerned, you are totally secure and safe. As far as you're concerned, all you have to do is to accept it. Can't do anything else. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it says that this, the Father spoke to the prophets in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus Christ is not just a human being. He's God himself who made the world, but God incarnate. God, who, take, who took your form, human form, was born as a human, fully God and fully man, for you. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is as God, not just as man, that he has done all that. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, so that the life that he lives, he lives to God, Romans 6.10 says. And Peter adds to that in 1 Peter chapter 3, that for Christ also died once and for all for sins. The just, the only one who is righteous and just, who died for the unjust, so that he may bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I mean, those are pretty clear words. What do we have to question about that? Can we see that what he has done is done and, and that's it? That we cannot add anything to what he has done already? Or can we offer something that is more precious or greater than God himself? Than what he offered for us? Than what he gave for us? So in Jesus Christ, God has manifested and realized his love for you. And he has done that once and for all. Now, that doesn't mean he stopped there. He has manifested it. He's made it known to you how much he loves you. But that love is perpetual. That love is eternal. That love existed before anything else besides God existed and now is poured out toward you and will continue to be poured out toward you no matter what for the rest of eternity. God will never one second, one millionth of a second ever stop loving you because that's not what he does. That's who he is. And in order for him to stop loving you, he will have to change who he is. And he's not going to do it. Not even for you. He cannot go back upon it. He cannot withdraw that love for you. 
without undoing the incarnation, without canceling the cross, without undoing the resurrection. And that he has already done. There is no way that God could ever take it back or will ever take it back because he would have to deny himself and undo everything that he has done in order to take that love for you to take any of it back. I hope that begins to give us a picture here. But then, of course, if you're anything like me, you start questioning yourself anyway. You look at yourself in the mirror and you go, Ugh, sounds familiar? So you take a second look and you say, Ugh, then you give up. But in Romans 3, beginning with verse 9, it's written the following. What then? Are we better than they? We can paraphrase it and say, are we better than anybody? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. That includes all of us. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the paths of peace they have not known. For there is fear, no fear of God before their eyes. For all have sinned, verse 23, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sin and all fall short of the glory of God. So now we have a problem. And what is that problem? Well, how can God give himself for us? Because we are all falling short of the glory of God, aren't we? And we are all sinners. And yet, and yet, Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't he just say two chapters earlier that we are all against God, that we are all enemies of God, are all sinners and all falling short of the glory of God? Yeah, he did, didn't he? And then two chapters later, he says, God demonstrates his love toward us. Oh yeah, toward you. Not in your best suit, toward you. In your worst moment, God has demonstrated his love. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, a lot of people keep thinking that Christ died for the righteous. And yet he himself said, the healthy person does not need a doctor or a physician. It's the one who is sick that needs a doctor, just like a, a sinner is the one who needs a savior, not the righteous. If you could be really righteous, you wouldn't need a savior. But the truth is, as we read in Romans 3, there is no one. The only exception was Jesus Christ himself, God himself. But there is no one who is righteous, no one who is without sin. And therefore, that includes all of us. We're all in the same boat, and that's not a very pretty boat. But even in our ugliest moments, even in our most treacherous moments, God loves you so much. In your sin, in your filth, in your worst, God loves you so much that he has given himself for you. John 6.40 then says, For this is the will of my Father. Oh, uh, Yeah, because some people say, Oh yeah, I know, Jesus is a nice guy. He's the young, nice guy, you know, with the blonde hair and so on. By the way, I doubt he have a, had blonde hair because he was a Jew of the house of David. And like all Jews, most likely he had very dark hair <laughs> and dark complexion too. But nevertheless, people portray him with that almost effeminate type of look because they want, they want to convey how gentle and how tender he is because after all, he is the manifestation, the ultimate manifestation of the love of God, right? 
And yet he says, this is the will of my father. Because if you start thinking of Jesus as the young guy who's a nice guy, who gives himself to appease the old man, the tough, the hard, the harsh one, the one who would want to burn you or kill you or something like that, and now the son comes up and says, come on, daddy, just give him a break. I know, I've heard that many times. And yet he himself said, this is the will of my father, the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. Did I read it correctly? Yes, everyone who accepts Jesus Christ will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Sounds like a commitment to me. Jesus Christ died for you exactly for that reason, because you're sinful and unworthy of him. Otherwise, he would not need to die for you, but he did. He did because of your sins. He did because who you are without God, you are absolutely nothing more than just like any one of us, a sinner. And that's why he died for you. That's why he loved you that much. That's why he gave you himself and poured out his blood for you. He has made you his own before and apart even you believing in him. None of us was born when Jesus died for us. And he has already made us one with him because of his death and his resurrection and his life. Because of the incarnation and everything that that, that conveys and everything that that includes. He has already made you one with him. And that's why when a Christian sins, when a person sins, it's like ripping himself apart from his own spiritual environment, God. Not Not even spiritual environment, but who you are because God made you in his image and likeness. It's still part in the fabric of who we are. We are connected with God. He has made you his own, even before you knew him, even before you ever heard of him, even before you ever even believed in him or accepted. Sometimes when I talk to people, I use an an example, and usually that perks them up. You know, sometimes when I talk, people get bored, and I mean, I go on and on and on, right? So people start snoozing and 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 some occasionally snoring too. That that makes a very interesting conversation, by the way, when you when you talk at the rhythm of the snore. But joking aside, <laughs> joke, joking aside, I perked them up with that question. It says, I have a check for you. Huh? Yeah, I have a check for you, a million dollar check for you, written in your name. And I want to give it to you. Oh, well, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> now, I don't know the foolishness of anyone that would believe that I have that much money anyway to begin with. But nevertheless, it perks their attention. And I say, it's already written out. It's got your name on it. It's got my signature. The money's in the bank, or was in the bank, um, and I give you the check. It's yours. Before you even knew anything about that, that was already given to you. Now, what are your options? You can try to go out and earn it, but I doubt that that would make any difference. In fact, you may be so busy trying to earn the check that you forget going to the bank and cashing it in. And the fact you're trying to work for it shows you haven't really accepted it as a gift. But I suggest there is a better, a better option, a better opportunity there. And that opportunity, that option is to accept the check as a gift, put it in a bank. Now you can enjoy the money that check represented. Similarly, Jesus Christ made you his own before you even knew it. But when he tells you, when you hear it, when you know it, now you have the opportunity to cash in. Now you have the opportunity to enjoy what? To enjoy that communion with him that you didn't have a clue about. There is something that you cannot work out, but he has already given it to you. 
Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What saves you is not your works. What saves you is not your own righteousness. What saves you is nothing to do with you. Notice what he says. Shall be saved by his life. Oh, wait. I thought that as a Christian, I'm supposed to be good. I'm supposed to do all the right things and everything else. Now, I won't deny that Christians have a code of conduct, but that's not to be saved or to be loved by God because Scripture is very clear. You're saved by his life. What does it mean, saved by his life? Here's what it means. He has bound you to himself by his love. He will never let you go. Even if you, if you refuse him, even if you reject him, even if you take that check and rip it apart and throw it away, the check is still yours. God will not take it back. He will never stop loving you. That's why we're called to turn around. That's why we're called to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, because he is that. Sometimes when people say, speak in language, it almost sounds like you're making him your Savior. No, he already is. And you already are accepted. You're already one with him. You're already included in him, but you don't know it. You need to know it, and you need to accept it to benefit from it. I want to share Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul wrote, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him on, in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Do you wonder why I always call it a gift? Because Scripture says it over and over and over. Not as a result of works. There you go again. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are the product of his work. You cannot make yourself righteous. You cannot make yourself right in any way. But he is a work in you to do that. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So what is the purpose of those good works? To manifest what God is doing in you. The purpose of the good works is not to make you righteous, but it's to show the righteousness of Christ that is already in you. It's to cash in the check in the bank. It's to use the money that God put in the bank through that check. It's to put it to, to use and to bring it up to reality in your life. That's the purpose of the good works. It's not so you can earn something, but that should not encourage us to say, oh, well, I don't need to do anything, therefore I'm going to sit back and snooze again. I think that should encourage us to say, no, wait a second, I want to be part of it. I want to be part of it no matter what. I want to be part at all costs. I want to be part of that because that is the way that Christ manifests his work in me. I want to be part of it. I want to participate in what he does. I want to be part of it. And that's the reason for us to live as Christians. Because from beginning to end, what Jesus has done for you, he has done not only as God, but also as man. He is the only perfect man. And it is in him in him, not in ourselves, in him that we are made righteous, that we are made perfect through his own human perfection, through his godly perfection, what we said before, but now what he's telling us is a human perfection encompasses all of us, and it's at work in all of us. And as such, he has acted in your place, in our place, in the whole range of life and activity. In other words, it is his work in us. 
Even our faith, even our believing in Him, it's His work in us. Do you think you can believe in God by yourself? Do you think you can believe and accept Christ all by yourself? Do you think you can have the faith that it takes to say, Lord, here's me and here's my life. I am dead to myself to be alive in you. Do you think you can do that by yourself? The answer is no. What would you be able to do by yourself is say, I don't see Him. I can't touch Him. I can't feel Him. There's no God in here. That's all that we can do by ourselves. But in Christ, if Christ is in you, even though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness, says in Romans 8. I want to summarize that part with the perfect wording that Paul used as he wrote to the Galatians, Galatians 2.20. Because he said it in a way that encompasses it all. For I have been crucified with Christ. I, what I want. Oh boy, do we stand up and say, I want this, therefore I deserve it. I deserve this, therefore I want it. When you put pride and lust together, it's a deadly combination because one tells you you deserve it, the other one tells you you cannot live without it. And so here we go, all self-centered, trying to suck in anything from life and from other people around us in any cost, at any cost. We want, we want to feel loved, we want to feel we have enough money, enough this and that, we want the car, we want the house, we want whatever it is that we are looking for, whatever it is that we crave and we lust, it's all for ourselves. And that self, Galatians 2.20, has been crucified with Christ. Paul didn't say my behavior has been crucified with Christ. Paul didn't say my sins have been crucified with Christ. Paul did not say that my religion has been crucified with Christ. Paul said, I am. I am crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's why we are to renounce ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because he has lived a perfect human life for you and me, for us. Because he has fulfilled our human response to God and is still working it out in us. And I would like to conclude with a few other reminders from Scripture that for by these he has granted us to, to us his precious and magnificent promises. Uh, his promise is something secondary, something marginal, something that is totally unimportant. Some people say, I don't care about religion, I don't care about God, I don't care about these things, I want money, I want properties, I want possessions, that makes me happy. You want to know what really is precious here? Listen, for 2 Peter 1.4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of a piece of land, of a room in a house, of a wheel of a car, the rest will come later. No, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. God has given you the most precious anything that he can give you, himself. But he hasn't just given himself for you so you can be okay. He has given himself for you so he can share his divine nature with you. He wants you to be at one with him. Why settle for anything else? It's almost like, hey, I'll tell you what. Here's a million dollar check but you have to go to the bank and deposit it. Or here's a dollar bill, you can use it right now. Oh, give me the dollar bill, give me the dollar bill. You, you know what I'm saying? Why settle for the little thing? Yes, God may, uh, may grant you some blessings in this life, but then when you start turning the gospel into a health and wealth gospel, if you are good, if you're a good Christian, God is gonna give you health and God is gonna give you wealth. Well, that's a bunch of baloney and that's quite a lower aim 
than what God wants to give you because God wants to make you, and actually God has made you, I repeat it, God has made you partakers of his divine nature. So stop watering down the gospel with the health and wealth and preaching and start looking at what God has really given you here because God has given to you anyway. But if you don't understand it, if you don't realize it, if you don't tap into that, you will never benefit from it. You will never enjoy it. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Oh, wait a second. Did I read what I read? Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Oh, now we're coming full circle. Being grounded and rooted in what? In love, in who God is. Because as you notice in all of this talking today and all of this blah, blah, blah that I've been going here long enough, I know, God has never told you that he has given you things, that he wants you to become like things. He has given you himself, and he wants you to become like him. In fact, he has made you like him. He has shared with you his very divine nature. So it makes sense that God, who is love, will say that you are going to be rooted and grounded in love. That's why Jesus said this is the greatest commandment of all, because that is what the aim of it all is. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy and said, the very goal of our teaching is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Nothing else is important but that, because that is at the God level. Everything else is secondary. So being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And I don't know if you don't get shivers with this, if you don't get goosebumps with this, you're deaf. So let me read it again. Please pay attention, because this is what God has offered you, what God is being offering you all the time. And here's what it is, that being rooted and grounded in love, not in greed, not in wealth, not in anything else, being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend, to understand, and to grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which just surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Not my words. I shiver just saying that because I'm afraid I'm saying something wrong here. Because it's so big, it's so humongous, so amazing, and so awesome that I tremble at stating those words. And I thank God that they're written for us. Does that give you some hope? Does that give you an understanding why Jesus said to the scribes that that is the greatest commandment of all? Of course it is. That's the whole purpose of our human existence. But if you have hope out of that, then don't neglect Romans 5.5. 5, because hope does not disappoint. And why does hope not disappoint? Why is this hope not going to let you down? Why, if you put your hope in God, if you put your hope in who you are in Christ, if you put your hope in these things, that hope will not disappoint you. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So as you accept that free gift, God makes you a partaker of his divine nature. He dwells in you. You dwell in him. You are at one with him. And his love is poured out in you, not trickled out, poured out in you, so that you can grow in him, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And so that you may be moved. You may be moved by that in all things. 
because that is the goal of it all. And I don't know how to even begin to express gratitude to God for all this. But if you join me, we'll just say thanks. Father, how can we begin to even praise you, to even acknowledge the awesomeness, the majesty, the amazing breadth and width and depth of your love and what you've done for us. And we thank you that you don't ask us to give you something back for this because there's nothing that we can give you, but there's one thing we can do. And there's one thing you ask of us, and you ask it not because you want to receive something you don't have, but something that we need is what you ask. And this is what we do, Father. We thank you, we praise you, we honor you, we accept you, and we give ourselves to you. Father, we ask you right here and now that you may forgive us for our sins. No, we don't ask you that, actually. We thank you for having forgiven us for our sins. We ask you, Lord God Almighty, not that you make us righteous, but we thank you for the righteousness you placed upon us in Christ. We ask you now that we can turn around and repent so that we can be part of you. And we thank you and we praise you for having done that and for who you made us to be in you. But we do ask you that you would change us and change our hearts, that we may be able to have our eyes opened. And as we accept you as our Savior, as our Lord, as we accept the communion that shared with you shared with us, we ask you, Father, that we may not just consider that as some intellectual understanding or intellectual knowledge, but we ask you, Father in heaven, God Almighty, that you would transform us in that and you make us every day more and more like you until we're going to be in the fullness of your presence and of your communion and of your love. We praise you and thank you, but we want to show you that gratitude and that thankfulness with our life. Please, Lord, grant us as you have made us instruments of your love, as you have made us instruments of your grace, grant us to respond to that and to live and rejoice accordingly. We praise you and thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.